Peace be upon you. So God willing, today we're going to talk about marriage. This is a topic that comes up a lot, obviously, because there's a lot of people who, God willing, one day want to get married, and they want to know what does God say in the Quran about marriage. And inshallah, we're going to look at the verses and uh, try to get a better sense of what the steps are. But from my analysis, basically, you can break down marriage into four simple steps. And uh, we're going to look into more detail on these steps. But in summary, the first step is that the there has to be a mutual desire and intention between the man and the woman that they want to get married, that they want to spend the rest of their lives together in a monogamous relationship. In the Quran, there is no boyfriend, girlfriend, dating, flings, anything of that nature. It's completely frowned upon. It's sinful. The intention of two people getting together, a man and a woman, is for the sake that if they want to decide, do they want to spend the rest of their lives together? And there's a gradual step to come to that conclusion until you finalize the marriage. But the entire process from engagement to marriage is all considered under the lens of marriage in the Quran. So that's the first step. The second one is that during that engagement process, the, the early stages of marriage before it's finalized, the man and the woman have to settle on a dowry. What is that going to be? And the man has to provide that to the woman. And it's up to them what they want to set that dowry uh, to. And this is something that has to be done before the finalization of the marriage. The third one is a solemn pledge from the man to the woman that he's going to maintain his devotion 100% to that woman, that he's not going to philander, he's not going to go and uh, have these kind of experiences with anyone else aside from his wife. And the fourth step is consummation. This is the finalization of a marriage. And this is obviously when the couple, they consummate, they have sex, and it finalizes that marriage process. And these four things have to happen in these particular order. Uh, if one of these is missing, then obviously we'd be breaking one of God's laws. So the first thing that comes up when you explain to someone that there's just these four steps in essence is they say, hey, well, what about a wedding ceremony or what about an official you know, legal document saying that we're married? Do we need to do that? And my answer is that, yeah, you know, chronically, it doesn't say you have to have a wedding ceremony or you have to have uh, state approval in order to be considered married. But you have to ask yourself, what is the intent of not doing it? There's a lot of young submitters and it's almost like they're fooling themselves because they think that if they create these ways of being able to get out of the marriage, if their you know, families don't know, if they're not formally uh, married uh, under the, uh, the eyes of the, uh, the state, then it's, you know, in essence, it creates this carve out. But if your genuine intention is that you're going to be together with this person, you know, God willing forever, there should be no hesitation in letting the world know that you're married, and there should be no hesitation into getting it done officially in the sake of that if you are in a country, and if there are certain processes that need to be uh, done in order to be recognized as a married couple, you know, submitters, we should do that. Um, there should be no reason for shying away unless, you know, we have these hidden motives. And if we do, we need to be upfront about that. So this concept that you'll see throughout the entire marriage process, marriage in essence in the Quran, it's a contract. It's a contract between a man and a woman that, you know, again, they want to intend to be together in a monogamous relationship, you know, God willing for the rest of their lives. And this is a theme throughout the entire Quran. The Quran only allows for mutually acceptable agreements, meaning that if one side of the party is not agreeing to the terms, then someone is being victimized. And this is considered sinful in the Quran. In Surah 4, verse 29, it reads, O you who believe, do not consume each other's properties illicitly. 
And here's the main crux. It says only mutually acceptable transactions are permitted. And this is across any kind of transaction, any kind of uh, agreement, any covenant we have. It has to be mutually acceptable. You know, if one side is not happy with the terms, they're not happy with the amount for the dowry or for the sake of even getting married, then it's wrong to force them into that contract. And this is something that God considers sinful. And we have to make sure that, you know, both parties, they're willingly participating. They're eager, in essence, to move forward with this. And this answers a lot of the questions in regards to uh, marriage, such as, you know, are you allowed to force someone to get married or, you know, arrange marriages where one side of the party is not accepting to those terms? These are all prohibited in the Quran. You know, it has to be mutually acceptable. The Quran makes a huge emphasis in the sake that we have to maintain our oaths. This is the reason that God frowns upon divorce. And there are there is a process in the Quran for divorce, but it's something that, again, is looked down upon. Uh, God wants to maintain the marriage, maintain the couple being together, the fact that they were intimate together, the fact that they had these you know shared time, they made this commitment. God wants us to keep our words. In Surah 1691, it reads, You shall fulfill your covenant with God when you make such a covenant. You shall not violate the oaths after swearing by God to carry them out, for you have made God a guarantor for you. God knows everything you do. Do not be like the knitter who unravels her strong knitting into piles of flimsy yarn. This is your example. If you abuse the oaths to take advantage of one another, whether one group is larger than the other, God thus puts you to the test. He will surely show you on the day of resurrection everything you had disputed. When we make this solemn pledge to our spouse, telling them that, look, we plan on being together forever. I have every intention of maintaining this relationship. And we break that covenant. In essence, we've just, we use God's name in vain because we made God a witness over this covenant we made, over this oath we made. In Surah 4, verse 20, it says, If you wish to marry another wife in place of your present wife, and you had given any of them a great deal, you shall not take back anything you had given her. Would you take it fraudulently, maliciously, and sinfully? How could you take it back after you have been intimate with each other, and they have taken from you a solemn pledge? If the intent is not to be together forever, if it was strictly for the sake of a fling, try it out, and then you know walk away then this is no different than a form of prostitution. This is no different than a form of almost extortion. You've just taken advantage. You violated someone else's rights because you pledged to one thing, but then you turn back. And God hates the betrayers. God hates those who don't maintain their word. And it's interesting, if you look at 2433, how God equates this kind of temporary marriage as a form of prostitution. In 2433, it reads, Those who cannot afford to get married shall maintain morality until God provides for them from His grace. And it continues, it says, You shall not force your girls to commit prostitution seeking the materials of this world if they wish to be chaste. If anyone forces them, then God, seeing that they are forced, is forgiver, merciful. If someone is forcing their daughter or you know someone they have guardianship over in order to push them towards a marriage that they know is not legitimate, is one that, you know, it's going to leave the couple tattered. The Maybe the man does not have the right intentions, or maybe the, uh, the woman just wants to be able to get out of the guardianship of her parents. 
that this is no different than a form of prostitution. And we're going to look at this. This world, uh, word that's used, you shall not force your girls in the uh, Quran, is in context to fully grown women. Someone who's fully grown but a young woman, if you push them into a marriage that they don't want to conduct, this is no different than a form of prostitution. Now, what's ironic is you have these Islamic countries who openly have what they call temporary marriages, where a couple will get together with the intent just to have sex, and then they will divorce immediately thereafter. And this is prostitution. We're not fooling anyone. We're not fooling God, that's for sure, when we conduct such behavior. You know, if you want to be intimate with someone, then the intent has to be that you want to marry this person, that you want to be with them for the rest of your life. Because if we're only there for a fling, for uh, immediate pleasure, then we're abusing God's system, we're abusing God's laws, and we're going to pay for it. We're going to have a life that is not going to be fulfilled because, again, when we break God's laws, there's consequences. In Surah 2, verse 191, it reads, Oppression is worse than murder. If we're forcing an individual into marriage because, let's say, you have a child or, in the case of an orphan, and you want to just get rid of them. So you think like, hey, and sadly, this happens in the world, that they're just going to give them off to someone else in order for them to marry. And you hear about these stories in uh, developing countries. That's a form of oppression. That's worse than murder. That's a form of prostitution. These poor individuals that have to go through that, that have to be married to someone that they are not mutually attracted to, someone that they do not want to spend the rest of their lives for. This is a horrendous thing. And God says he's forgiver, most merciful. In Surah 66, surprisingly enough, when it's talking about divorce, it says anyone who reverences God he creates an exit for them. That if you are one of these individuals in this situation, if you trust in God, God will create an exit for you. Because at that point, you know, you were forced into it. A while back, I was listening to a debate. This was someone who was a, a Mohammedan who believed in Hadith and stuff. And as you notice, I don't ascribe to any Hadith. I don't believe them. I think most of them are fabrications, and then the ones that aren't, there's no way of validating. You know, these occurred 300 plus years after the revelation of the Quran. You know, the vast majority, 99%, were eliminated as fabrications, and the small subset that were there are highly skeptical. There are all kinds of this nonsense. But there was a debate, and the person who was the Hadithist, he was claiming that the Quran allows for a man to marry a child. And I was disgusted by such a thing. You know, who would make such an argument? In Surah 17, verse 38, it reads, All bad behavior is condemned by your Lord. Now, if someone has to explain to you that marrying a child is a disgusting, immoral act, I'm sorry, this religion is not for you. God tells us he's most gracious, most merciful. You know, we have to live our lives by virtue of our belief. Virtue means the good deeds, the things that were, in essence, that if you go and ask 10 people and you say, is this moral behavior? You'll have your answer. This is intrinsically applied to us. God has put this into our hearts that we know what is good and what is bad. And there's no way you can justify a full-grown adult marrying a child. When I was in Sunday school, <laughs> this is disgusting. There was a grad student you know, he was probably in his late 20s. Uh, and this is a very prestigious university. And one day he, he leaves 
And people said, oh, he's going to go get married. He comes back. And I swear his wife must have been no older than 14 years old. What a sick, disgusting act. You take this child and in essence, you're forcing them into this life. So where is the proof that obviously, aside from just basic morality, that the Quran says, look, marriage is something that happens between two adults. What's interesting is every verse you look in the Quran when it talks about the uh, marriage, there's only two words that are used in the context of the female. One is uh, al-nisa, which literally means woman, full-grown woman. You will not find the concept of a girl as an immature girl in the context of marriage. The other one is fati. This root, it means a full-grown young woman. Someone who's past maturity. These are the only words you'll see ascribed when it talks about marriage. And if you want further proof, you can look at um, Surah 3, verse 36. In Surah 3, verse 36, it says, this is in regards to the birth of Mary. It says, when she gave birth to her, she said, my Lord, I have given birth to a girl. This word that's used is untaha. This root means a young girl, someone who's a prebuescent young girl. And if you look in Surah 4 verse 6, it says, You shall test the orphans when they reach puberty. And this word, al-nikah, it means the age of marriage, the age of sexual maturity. So these words are interlinked. Someone until they, leave, they pass puberty, until they uh, are sexually mature, they are not in the context of being able to be married. Think of this, the concept of marriage is a contract between two parties that have to mutually accept those terms. Someone who's immature, who lacks that element, that fundamental capacity to be able to process the commitment that they're vowing to be with this individual for the rest of their lives, they're incapable of being married. God gives us the example in 2.282, where it says if the debtor is mentally incapable or helpless or cannot dictate, his guardian shall dictate equitably. Now, put this in the context of marriage. Your guardian is not the one who's going to be married. That child would be the one who's married. Is that child capable of being able to make such a vow? They can't. So by de facto, they're not eligible to be married. These are the basic requirements. The fact that this has to be spelt out, that there's people who think that, you know, marrying a child is a moral act are disgusting. There is nothing moral about this. Now, I want to make one caveat. The caveat is the fact that you do have forms, and this is historical, and you'll see them all through history, where two individuals are, in essence, promised to one another. In that sense that if you have two children from two families and they say, look, when they get of age, they will be married to one another, is fundamentally different than when you take an adult to have sexual relations with a child. That's molestation. That is a disgusting act. Now, two people, if they say, hey, look, they're vowed to one another, again, they have to be mutually agreeing to this when they are of a mature age, not as a child, because again, this is a contract between those two individuals, not anyone else. Saying that aside, you know, let's look at the other steps. It's, it's sad that that has to even be brought up, but this is the state of affairs that we live in. You know, people think that it's okay for a 30, 40-year-old man to marry a child. It's disgusting. 
The other element between marriage is the aspect of uh, dowry. So during the engagement process, what takes place is the two couple, the, the couple, they decide that, hey, look, they want to have the intention of being married. So they want to test the waters before they, uh, they consummate, before everything. And part of that is agreeing upon a dowry. The future husband and wife, they have to decide what is that dowry it's going to be. And then the husband has to provide that during the engagement process. In Surah 4 verse 4, it says, You shall give the woman their due dowries equitably. If they willingly forfeit anything, then you may accept it. It is rightfully yours. And in 424, it reads, These are God's commandments to you. All other categories are permitted for you in marriage, so long as you pay them their due dowries. You shall maintain your morality by not committing adultery. Thus, whoever you like among them, you shall pay them their dowry decreed for them. And it goes on. It says, You commit no error by mutually agreeing to any adjustments to the dowry, God is omniscient, most wise. So individuals, they have to decide what is that dowry. And as long as it's mutually acceptable and the husband is able to provide the dowry, that all happens during the engagement process, which is just part of marriage. For clarification on this, if you look at Surah 2 verse 236, it says, You commit no error by divorcing the women before touching them or before setting the dowry for them. In that case, you shall compensate them the riches you can afford and the poor as you can afford an equitable compensation. This is the duty upon the righteous. So if the couple decides to separate, notice that God says that this is a divorce. This is before the dowry has been set and before, obviously, they consummate the marriage. That if they do, the husband and the wife, they can mutually agree to some settlement, something, because during that process, when the, uh, the, the marriage fell through, you know, they could have had uh, other suitors, but obviously they were committed to each other during that process so they can agree. And again, it's mutually agreeable. They have to come up with those terms. It continues in 2237. It says, if you divorce them before touching them, but after you had set the dowry for them, then the compensation shall be half of the dowry unless they voluntarily forfeit their rights or the party responsible for causing the divorce chooses to forfeit the dowry. To forfeit is closer to righteousness. You shall maintain the amicable relations among you. God is seer of everything you do. That again, before the consummation, if the dowry is set, but then things fall through, that they could quote unquote divorce. But this isn't the same divorce that takes place that's required after the consummation. But this is all part of the engagement process, which is just the steps to marriage. One of the elements that in regards to the dowry is the fact that the husband has to be able to afford getting married. In 2433, it reads, Those who cannot afford to get married shall maintain morality until God provides from them from his grace. And in the second part, it's worth putting some context here. You know, in the past, slavery was a way of life. The Quran created a system in order for people to be able to transition out of being a slave into being a free individual. And um, we gave a whole podcast on this. I believe it's under the uh, title, The Best Psychology. I can't remember if it's part one or part two. But um, I wanted to read the continuation of this verse in 2433. It says, Those among your servants who wish to be freed in order to marry, you shall grant them their wish once you realize that they are honest and give them from God's money that he has bestowed upon you. So two things. One is that obviously if someone is a slave or a servant and they want to be freed, God is creating a duty upon the uh, uh, individual 
that they have to permit them their freedom, but then also to give them money in order to fulfill their marriage. But the criteria is also the fact that you have to prove that the individual is honest. Sometimes when we're in a bad situation, we will make bad decisions just to get out of that situation. And similarly, if someone is under the servitude of slavery or being a servant to someone else, sometimes they may think that just in order to leave that condition, that they're better off marrying someone that they wouldn't had they been free. And it's important that, again, the intent has to be that there has to be that mutual consent from both parties. There is a concept known as being a you-voluntary ex uh, exchange. This is when one side, the alternative of a no deal, is astronomically worse than the other side. And I'll give you a quick example. If I'm in the desert and I'm dying of thirst and uh, I'm on my last uh, breath of life and some dude walks by with a whole cart of perfect cold water and I say, you know, thank God, what a blessing. And I go to drink that water and he says, oh, wait, that water is going to be $10 million. Now, if I don't get this water, I die. If he doesn't get the water, he might lose a sale. So during those contexts, you have a you-voluntary exchange where one side might be being exploited just because of their conditions. And in these conditions, it's important, especially when you're dealing with something like marriage, that the individual is committed, that they're genuine in the sake of wanting to get married, not just to get out of a situation. That was kind of a tangent. But in continuation, if you read 425, it continues, says, those among you who cannot afford to marry free believing women may marry believing slave women. God knows best about your belief and you are equal to one another as far as belief is concerned. You shall obtain permission from their guardians before you marry them and pay them their due dowry equitably. This is the same line of reasoning. You know, in the time when there were slaves, if you were a desperate individual, you might want to marry someone uh, who's a slave because you know that their conditions are so dire that they would be willing to marry you. But if they're only doing that in order to get out of their situation, then in essence, you're exploiting that person. And God is creating ways for individuals to not fall into such a situation. You know, according to the Quran, if and it's proof that slavery ends up being abolished. Uh, it's something that's uh, frowned upon. But again, it has to be transitioned out of society. We saw what happened in America when all of a sudden you... Uh, allow uh, individuals, uh, you change them from being a slave one day to free the others, that they become second-class citizens. But if you look here, God is saying that um, cannot afford a free-believing woman, may marry believing slave woman. God knows best about your belief. You're equal to one another as far as belief is concerned. God is telling us that, look, there is no difference between the male and the female. There is no difference between the free and the uh, slave in the eyes of God. You know, what matters is our righteousness. One thing I want to point out is that in this verse, it says you shall maintain permission from their guardians. And the word here is alihina, which means family. In essence, if you're an orphan, then you have guardians. But if you're, you're not, then it's your family. And I think it's important to say that the family is involved in this process of marriage, that out of respect and honor for their parents, that the parents are consulted when a man and woman want to get married. And again, one of the commandments for us is that we honor our parents. 
if we do this in secret and we don't tell our parents, then um, you know what does that say about our upholding of God's commandments? In Surah 2, verse 221, it reads, Do not marry idolatresses unless they believe. A believing woman is better than an idolatress, even if you like her. Nor shall you give your daughters in marriage to idolatrous men unless they believe. A believing man is better than an idolater, even if you like him. These invite to hell while God invites to paradise and forgiveness as he wills. He clarifies his revelations for the people that they may take heed. So God is telling us, as males, we should not marry idol-worshipping women. And as parents, we should not allow our daughters to be married to idol-worshipping men. Now, it's interesting. It says, do not marry idolatresses unless they believe. Some people ask, they say, what does this mean? And my take is it's a quote from uh, Henry Ford about models, Model T's. He says, you can have any color you want as long as that color is black. And it's the same thing. You can marry anyone you want as long as they're a believer and not an idol-worshipper. As long as they believe in God, they're a moral person, they're, uh, you can marry them. And there's other requirements as far as who we can marry and who we can't. We're not allowed to uh, obviously commit incest. That's in the Quran. And uh, the other one that comes up is in regards to homosexuality. They say, hey, where does it say that it's only a man and a woman? And actually, it does say it in the Quran. In 42.50, it says, or he may have the males and the females marry each other, then render whomever he wills sterile. He is omniscient, omnipotent. And also, we know numerous times in the Quran from the example of Lot, that what they performed in regards to homosexuality was an abominable act. In Surah 7, verse 80, it says, Lot said to his people, You commit such an abomination, no one in the world has done it before. You practice sex with the men instead of the women. Indeed, you are transgressing people. So this act of homosexuality is condemned in the Quran. Uh, it's not the trait of a uh, believer. And to think that you know a man and a man and a woman and a woman can get married goes counter to God's system. God created marriage between a man and a woman specifically, a male and a female. <laughs> it doesn't matter what you identify as, what are you biologically? That's the system of God. So this gets to the last stage, the last stage of marriage. But before we do, so just to recap, the couple needs to mutually agree that they want to be together, right? They can't be forced into it. Uh, both parties have to uh, want that. The intention must be that they plan on staying together forever. You know, God forbid they have a divorce, but the intention from that time must be that it's uh, uh, forever. The other aspect is the setting of the dowry and then the solemn pledge. The fact that the husband makes the solemn pledge, asks for the permission from the family of the woman. And the uh, last one is consummation. This is where they actually have sex. And this finalizes the marriage. And this one is considered the most serious. Now, what's interesting is there's two verses in the Quran that are constantly brought up and uh, people abuse tremendously. Boko Haram is a perfect example of this. And they abuse this one particular phrase. And I want to get into that. So in 23.5, it reads, and they maintain their chastity only with their spouses or those who are rightfully theirs do they have sexual relations. They are not to be blamed. And this expression, those who are rightfully theirs, in Arabic is malakat a manahom which means if you take a literal translation, it could also mean uh, this is how you'll typically see it translated or what your right hand possesses. So malakat is possesses, aymanakum is what your right hand. But these words are multi-meaning words. And malakat also means to take a wife. And aymanahum also means to make a vow or an oath. And uh, this expression is used again in 70, 29, and 30. It says they keep their chastity 
and they have relations, sexual relations, only with their spouses or what is legally theirs. So what does this mean? The first thing is that people, they think that they can have sex slaves. As disgusting as this is, this is the justification. They say, look, if you're at war, you can go and take some slaves and you can have sex with them. And this is what Boko Haram and these other disgusting individuals uh, claim, and they abuse these verses. Now, what's interesting is, first off, if you look at the Arabic, the expression is only with their spouses or those who are rightfully theirs. It doesn't say and. Okay, if this said and, then you'd say, okay, you could have sex with multiple partners. But it specifically says or. It says only with their spouses or those who are rightfully theirs. Ow as opposed to wa. This is the difference between and and or. And is obviously you put both together. Or is exclusive. So you can have with one or the other. So that's the first indication. The second one is the fact that this word, again, Malakat, it could be someone you, uh, in essence, you have control over in the sense of a servant, a subordinate, an employee, something of that nature it can be used, and you see it used in the Quran. But in this context specifically, it's those you've taken a vow of marriage to. And it's blatantly obvious. I'll give you an example. So this word, if you look at 912, the exact same word, Aymanahom, is used. It says, if they violate their oaths after pledging to keep their covenants and attack your religion... Right? This is talking about an oath. It doesn't say if they violate your right hand. Right, The hand is a representation of an oath. There's a verse in the Quran where it says God places his hand above their hand in the sake of this is making an oath. Now, Malakat, again, it could mean possess or control, but it also means to take a wife. The exact same word means to take a wife. The fact that we have to clarify these matters for these imbeciles who abuse the Quran to act immorally, there is no hope for them. But for the vast majority of people who hear this rhetoric that, you know, this claim that, oh, the Quran, you can marry children or uh, you can have sex slaves. It's disgusting. It's absolutely disgusting. But by God's leave, we need to clarify these matters. So when we get into a discussion with individuals, uh, we have the knowledge in order to diffuse the situation that if someone says, yeah, what your right hand possesses, that means sex slaves. You can say, no, that means what vows you make in marriage. Because the concept is some people, they don't have formal marriage in that sense. You know, there's an expression, you'll see it in many countries. It's called a common law marriage. This is where two people, there's no state that looks over their marriage, but they made a vow together that they're going to be together forever. And this is the reason that you don't need a state to validate your marriage. Marriage is something between you and God. So in a society where the state is not the one who recognizes the marriage, marriage is just done between two people that they make this contract, those common law marriages are fulfilled in these verses. That's why it's translated as those who are rightfully yours or what is legally theirs in that sense that these two people, they're legally bound to one another in this concept of marriage. For the last part, I just want to talk about two other aspects. This has to do with divorce and polygamy and the sake that God frowns upon divorce. And just there's a lot of verses that go to the details of what's necessary to go through the divorce process. And I'm going to put that aside for now. But I wanted to emphasize the fact that God tries to create caveats, requirements for us to decide not to get a divorce. In 435, it says, If a couple fears separation, you shall appoint an arbitrator from his family and an arbitrator from her family. If they decide to reconcile, God will help them get together. God is omniscient, cognizant. Numerous times we have in the Quran where two individuals, two feuding factions, were at the throat of one another. And God transforms the situation, makes them best of friends, 
And if you were in a relationship that's going through a rough patch, if you follow these steps, you get an arbitrator from your family, they get an arbitrator from their family, and you choose to reconcile, God will help you in that process. In Surah 4, 128, it says, If a woman senses oppression or desertion from her husband, the couple shall try to reconcile their differences, for conciliation is best for them. Selfishness is a human trait, and if you do good and lead a righteous life, God is fully cognizant of everything you do. You know, we shouldn't be selfish. We realize that, look, when we made these vows together, we brought our two families together. If by God's leave, we had children together, that we should do our utmost to try to maintain together, to maintain our word. The last item I just want to touch on is this concept of polygamy. You know, this comes up a lot in the context of the Quran and uh, um, in general, just historically. And the Quran, it's very clear on polygamy. In 4.3, it says, If you deem it best for the orphans, you may marry their mothers, you may marry two, three, or four. If you fear, lest you become unfair, then you shall be content only one for what you already have. Additionally, you are thus more likely to avoid financial hardship. So God, in essence, he doesn't put a limit on how many wives an individual has. But if you read the verse, it says, If you deem it best for the orphans, the concept is polygamy must be used, not something loose in that sense. This, this was a way of life in the past. You have societies that large swaths of men are lost due to war. And in a society where a woman does not have a male uh, patriarch, it could be very detrimental for them, especially if they have children. And it's under those conditions that polygamy could be tolerated. But if you read and it says, if you, if you fear lest you become unfair, then you shall be content with only one, that God is setting a limitation here. Because in 4.129, it reads, you can never be equitable in dealing with more than one wife, no matter how hard you try. Therefore, do not be so biased as to leave one of them hanging, neither enjoying marriage or left to marry someone else. If you correct the situation and maintain righteousness, God is forgiver most merciful. You know, polygamy was a way of life in the past. It does not apply anymore. You know, it's just like in the past, it was very common to have 10, 12 children. Right now, most people, at best, they have one, two, maybe three kids. And it's just, it's different in that, that sake. You know, we need to be 100% committed to our spouse. And again, this concept of mutually acceptable transactions. If, you know, you lived in the past, my speculation is that if you were to have another wife, your other wife has to be okay with that. It has to be acceptable to her because she's part of that contract that she's willing to give her husband up in order for him to tend to someone else. And that is something that, you know, in essence, you can't look past the verses of the Quran. You know, if you notice, again, I don't talk about the Hadith. I don't believe in any of them. I think they're nonsense. The stories they have about the Prophet and, you know, his uh, escapades, I don't buy any of it. You know, the Prophet Muhammad followed the Quran to the T to think that he deviated from any verse in the Quran. God tells us he would never do such a thing. In 1773, it says, they almost diverted you from the revelations we have given you. They wanted you to fabricate something else in order to consider you a friend. If we're not that we strengthened you, you almost leaned towards them just a little bit. Had you done that, we would have doubled the retribution for you in this life and in the after death. And you would have found no one to help you against us. They almost banished you from the land to get rid of you so they could revert as soon as you left. 
This has been consistently the case with all the messengers that we sent before you, and you'll find that our system never changes. God is telling us, look, the Prophet Muhammad was not able to deviate one iota. Had he done that, in another verse, it says we would have cut the, the revelations to him. We would have cut his jugular. He would not be able to do anything. He would be sent to hell and double the retribution. Now, to think that he did anything that intentionally objected to the verses and revelations of the Quran that we have today that's authorized, that we can validate every letter and every word, to me is nonsensical. You know, why would I believe such nonsense hadith that are out there? You know, I follow the Quran alone. I look at guidance from the Quran just like Prophet Muhammad himself did. To think that he followed any other source beside the word of God is purely comical. God willing, we're going to end there. If you guys got comments or questions, please hit us up at QuranTalk at gmail.com. And until next time, peace and God bless. Allah, Allah.